I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Um, <clears throat> this is hella exciting. We are sans Brian for this recording, and that's that's quite all right. Um, but uh, but in in Brian's place, we've got Dr. Ann Wagner, uh, who is a clinical psychologist and treatment development uh, researcher based in Toronto, Canada. And Ann uh, is the founder of Remedy, which is a mental health innovation community, and the Remedy Institute, which is Remedy's home for research. And uh, I'm I the reason I'm so excited for this conversation is because we are diving back into the world of uh, the the future and the use of psychedelics, in particular, being used to treat um, things like mental disorders and beyond. Um, and and I know that this is a big a big part of your work, uh, mm-hmm. especially at the Remedy Center, um, so or the Remedy Institute. Sorry. Um, Give us a little bit of a, I mean, first of all, just introduce yourself to our listeners and give us a little rundown on how you, how you ended up in this world uh, that is very, very exciting and, and uh, sort, of, sort of hopefully taking off over the next few years. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so I had a really winding path to get here. Um, I have, as of, you know, maybe eight years ago. I knew pretty much nothing about psychedelics. And now I, this literally takes up all of my, (laughs) all of my time, all of my energy, all my focus. Um, And it's been a real labor of love trying to get these studies off the ground here in Toronto, which is so exciting that they're now happening. But so I'm clinical psychologist, as you mentioned, and I was doing a postdoctoral fellowship after finishing my PhD. And I was developed in doing this you know, training to become what we call like a trialist, meaning how do you test treatments to see if they work for folks? And I was specifically focusing on both PTSD and on couples. And so my postdoc mentor had developed this treatment um, called cognitive behavioral conjoint therapy. So it's a couples therapy Mm. for PTSD. And we got approached by MAPS, which is the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Research, to suggest perhaps we might want to collaborate together. And um, MAPS has been doing this work for a really long time, Mm -hmm. since 1985, of trying to bring MDMA through as a medicine so that we can use it in the treatment of mental health conditions and then ideally beyond. So uh, at that point, you know, I knew nothing about the use of MDMA in research. And um, there was a really, uh, I think, a really smart and strategic move that MAPS was doing at the time. They had a study running for therapists to have their own MDMA therapy experience. So, Ah, okay, yeah. So, you know, imagine going into your like supervisor's office and you get asked (laughs) like, so do you want to go to South Carolina and take MDMA in a couple of weeks? And you're like, is there a festival happening? Why were <laughs> yeah, you asking yeah. me this? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so I was like, uh, okay. And also why were we doing this? So I like how I said, okay, first. And then oh, I know, but, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. ask questions later. Yeah. 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 And so, yeah, we, so I went into that experience kind of with this intellectual question of going like, interesting. I wonder if this could combo with some of these treatments that we're working on to amplify them, make them even more effective, Mm. do something else. And so I remember going into that experience myself going like, right, I'm going to really like, I'm going to take some notes. I'm going to think about this. And then realizing like, as soon as I got there and met with, 
you know, our, um, my therapist then, but now my colleagues, um, Annie and Michael Mithofer, like realizing like, oh, no, no, I, I, I have to do my own therapy experience mm-hmm. within this. And so kind of let go of the trying to be the good, you know, trialist for a little bit and, and got to, to have the experience myself. And so that was the reason why my trajectory shifted into wow. doing this type of work. Mm. I found it so compelling, you of know, course. yeah, yeah. As, as having done lots of therapy myself as a trainee and then a, a psychologist and, you know, think that's really important. You know, if you're sitting in the chair with someone to have had your own experiences in the chair too, <laughs> then this to me was, uh, an incredibly powerful and in-depth tool. And so it Ooh. catalyzed a lot for me after that. And I was just really taken and interested with it. So that's, where it started. Amazing. I, now, now before going into this, I'm, I'm wondering what, um, what were your like preconceived notions of, of, uh, MDMA, you know, like, was there, um, was there any, any sort of stigmas that you had going into it that, you know, being someone who has never, never taken MDMA before, you know, uh, I, I mean, psychedelics for, for, decades now have been demonized and, and, and viewed as like, uh, you know, a, 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 a net negative thing to be, to be doing in our lives. Um, so was there, was there anything going into it that you were nervous about or, or were you, were you pretty, you know, considering this is coming from maps and this is coming from like really, uh, you know, a, a, a very well-established group of folks who really know what they're talking about. Did, did you kind of go into it feeling pretty okay and, and, and open-minded? Yeah, I would say, um, the, the fears that I had or the anxieties I had going in were not about the medicine itself. They weren't Mm. about the the drug. It was more about like, Oh, what's it going to bring up in me? Um, and so that was more of the, the work and prep I had to do going like, I have absolutely no idea how this is going, what's going to come up in my psyche. I don't know how it's going to feel in my body. Like that was, those were the major things that were more concerning to me, um, which actually helps a lot. And now when I'm sitting with people and getting them ready for their experiences going like, right, I remember how anxious and fearful I was ahead of time. Cause I had no idea. That was the first time where I had done, you know, that type of non-ordinary state work. I think I have, I've had a long meditation practice and a long, you know, history of doing that. So I'm not totally, you know, removed from the concept of different states of consciousness, but not in that way and not in that kind of concentrated focus. So Ooh. isn't yeah. it funny how, 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 I, cause I, 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 I understand exactly that feeling. Um, you know, whenever I've, whenever I've used like psilocybin, for example, for, a for, for a purpose for like, a you know, I want to, I, I want to have some, I want to have like a, 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 like a self-reflective, um, experience and, um, and, and there's always that piece that you kind of need to just get, just, it's just a little hump to get over of what's going to come up. And mm. although there's that piece of you that knows that <clears throat> what does come up is probably going to be helpful in, in, in the long term of of realizing that there's something there that you need to work with and work on how incredibly uh uncomfortable that that can be mm-hmm. uh and and how it can and how for and I, and I think for a lot of people how it can prevent you from going down that path of of reflection mm-hmm. or or therapy or um mm-hmm. anything that's going to that's going to show you that there's some work to do how how incredibly uh uncomfortable and fearful that can be. Yeah. Yeah. Good point there with, with that Tate, like even just the, the very like vanilla idea of just therapy, you know, just going to see a therapist. There's even that, that those, you know, those butterflies that come up where it's like, Oh, I don't know. Well, yeah. Like know what's going to come up and what am I, yeah. and what, what am I, what am I looking at here? What am I going to have to face? Yeah, and, and yeah. I, I think just like a, an, a fairly natural resistance to change that humans have that yeah. change is going to be uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And therefore, you know, I'll, Oh, I, I, there's inevitably those feelings that you'd like to kind of push away from it. Mm. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm curious about MDMA specifically. So, um, I, I, 
I have no personal, I have no experience from a therapeutic, from like a, a clinical use of, of psychedelics. I have, I have personal recreational experience with psychedelics. Um, and I always thought every time that I had a, a, an experience like that, I always kind of thought, wow, the, the way that this is uh, portrayed in the public is, uh, is really not jiving with how I, what I'm experiencing. And, um, and then it was a few years ago, I read Michael Pollan's book, how to change your mind. And then that like really catalyzed thinking about it in a, in, in like a, a, a more, much more broad, uh, holistic use, clinical use for treating conditions and, and helping the, the human condition. Um, and I know that, th- that he, in, in that book, he sort of talked about the, the spectrum of psychedelics and sort of where I, I remember now MDMA kind of having its own little category, mm-hmm. um, in that, in, in the spectrum and that it kind of varied from, um, things like psilocybin or LSD. Um, can you, can you kind of give some context to what, how that might be viewed MDMA specifically in, in the range of psychedelics? Yeah, absolutely. So MDMA is actually not considered like a classic psychedelic. Um, it's, it's had other terms used for it. Some people call it an empathogen, some people an intactogen, um, intactogen meaning like to touch within empathogen meaning to feel connected or empathic with others. And so it's, I mean, it has different neurological functioning, different impact on, you know, your neurotransmitters and hormones won't really go into that piece, but the idea being that it is, um, it's not bringing up, for example, hallucinations. It's, mm. you're, it's not, you're not gonna have visuals with MDMA. You may have things coming up from your psyche that kind of feel like it's maybe some imagery behind your eyes, but that's more from your memory or from your experience. Um, you wouldn't like open your eyes and see something that looks different to you. Um, yeah, so I mean, in that way, it's very different from mm. you say psilocybin or LSD or a DMT. And so there's that. And also people are very, um, very present in the here and now when they're on MDMA and, but they're also able to go into their memories and be in what we kind of call this optimal zone of arousal, which is why it's so effective for PTSD treatment. So Mm. think about PTSD, people are often either really overactivated or underactivated. And that's why it's so difficult to go back and look at memories, emotions, experiences, because you you, you like either shut down or get really, really activated or triggered. Mm -hmm. And so with MDMA, you have this, the way it's working is that you're in this zone where you can feel, you can actually go and feel the difficult negative things and the positive things without getting over or underactivated. Mm. And so that is incredibly effective, but you can also Mm -hmm. think about like, if you're taking it in a different context, like in a recreational context, you're not going to be focusing in that same way. And the MDMA is so, um, malleable in terms of like the effect because it's so context dependent. So depending on where you're taking it and why you're taking it, what the intention is be vastly different. And so when people are taking it in the studies, for example, and they're in a room with two therapists and they've got, you know, music playing eye shades on, they're focused on doing healing work. They're going to have experiences of going inwards and thinking about whatever it is that's um, coming up for them in those moments, which is yeah. really different than being kind of outward focused in a, you know, setting where you might be mm. focusing on other people or music or something. So it's kind of like, um, so I, I'm hearing it as sort of like, um, uh, the bumper, like bumpers at a, uh, at a, at a bowling alley. Like it keeps you in, it keeps you in the, in the mm. right lane when you're doing, like when you're doing that clinical clinical work where you're working on, on, on something like, on, on something like treating PTSD, like keeping you in the right zone to effectively increase to effectively, your chances of a strike. Yes. To continue, <laughs> yes. To continue with the bowling analogy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think that's a neat descriptor of it. Actually, it was really interesting. Um, in our current studies, someone actually re- made reference to kind of the bumpers, but we, they were actually talking about what we do before and after the experience too. So what we call our preparation integration, like the therapy that we're using. 
And yeah, we're testing a new therapy or well, a therapy that's been used on its own, but it's a new combination with MDMA. And uh, <laughs> that, you know, it's more of a, uh, a protocol based therapy, meaning it's got things you do each session that you would always do each session. Hmm. And so this, you know, participant was talking about it feeling like there are bumpers around the experience, but it's also, it's true. You can kind of think of it as like bumpers in the experience too. Hmm. Um, yeah. Even though during it, people are having all kinds of emotional experiences. They're totally. able to have them. Yeah. yeah right. I, I, I really want to get into the, uh, in particular, the two types of therapy um, that, that you guys have like, you know, investigated, but before we do, just just as a refresher because i know these things these things kind of change um uh i mean not rapidly nothing nothing is fast in the in terms of change in the in the healthcare system in canada but but I, they do change uh and with all of the things going on in the world this, these changes oftentimes are um uh, go unnoticed and so so my my question is um what is the what is the current status of the use of psychedelics or psychedelic esque like drugs, um, in, in terms of, uh, in terms of use for, for therapeutic, uh, uses. Yeah. So in Canada right now, um, it is illegal to use MDMA, uh, psilocybin or any other psychedelic. The only one that's kind of a quasi psychedelic that is legal to use is ketamine. Yes. And then ketamine is supposed to only be prescribed for very specific indications. Um, we see it being prescribed kind of off label more so. And so, but the, the data isn't really there um, around all the off label prescriptions of ketamine. Um, what, what, you know, what I kind of get the, the sense of is a lot of people are interested in or going towards ketamine assisted therapy because it is the one thing that's legal it may not be necessarily the top choice for you know what it is that people are trying to work on but it's the only one that people can do so um i often think about that because it's it's a dissociative right so it takes you kind of up and out of experiences Mm. versus when i think about mdma it's like getting it's like getting a hug before you have to go really deeply in Mm. and versus you know psilocybin or lsd which are more like you are going down and in and then you got to go be with it and make your way through so Mm -hmm. it's uh you can see that eventually if these things are able to be scheduled so that we can use them in in treatment or in you know growth that you're gonna have a better uh, pairing of what you want to do versus with what's available. So that means right now when we're using MDMA or psilocybin here in research, that's approved by health Canada. So you need approval for that, but it's only for research. And so, um, at the moment, that's what the, the landscape. Oh, wow. Okay. So, so would, would that, um, I, I, I feel like I had read, and this might even have been like the catalyst for me reaching out to you back, probably back in December, January, maybe. Um, but but I feel like I had read somewhere that like Canada had approved some sort of special access programming. Is that, is that what falls under this this notion of research? So not quite. That's one thing that has shifted a little bit. Is there is a special access program for medicines that um, basically they're for life threatening illnesses, okay. and so that program's designed. Uh, you can even like when you look at the forms, that's designed for someone who's it's immediate. They potentially would die without accessing something else. Nothing else is working. And so prior to about December, there was a few cases that were being approved with psilocybin um, before that. So it was mostly with folks with depression or anxiety related to a terminal illness. Mm -hmm. And so those were being (laughs) approved. um, And that was through a bit of a, not a loophole, but it was, um, it was only psilocybin because it was a mushroom that could be picked um, versus now they, there has been a shift. There's been an announcement from health Canada that they would, they're not excluding psychedelics anymore. It used to be that psychedelics were not able to be included, but we're right at the beginning. So we don't know if those cases are going to be approved or not. Like for right. example, you can make the argument that someone with, you know, treatment resistant depression has a life threatening illness because you could have increased suicidality with that. Mm-hmm. Right. And right. then, um, you can make the argument that if, you know, multiple other treatments haven't worked, let's try this because nothing else is working. So 
you know, we're, we're going to um, put through a test case with that to the program to see if it'll be approved, but it's very much like a case by case basis. We don't anticipate there's going to be like a huge number of people who are going to be able to go through it. It's really mm. been a specific mechanism, but mm. I see it's a good thing that it's even, be, that's even being considered because right. I mean that yeah. we're on the right track at least. Right. Yeah. 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 There's a, there's, this is, I, I, this has come up a few times, um, uh, from me in the, in, in, in the past, um, you know, a couple of months, I don't know exactly when this episode is, is slotted in, in terms of time, but, um, soon, um, you know, there, there's a, when I, when I hear you talk about how, you know, you can get pushed towards like a ketamine treatment because it's, it's sort of like what's available instead of really, what's really going to do the best, be, do the, do the best work depending on what you're on what you're, um, on what you're trying to treat and what you're dealing with. And, and I, this is a bit of a different conversation, but I think that it, it leads itself to this in terms of the way that things can be, you know, very challenging to very challenging to get things off the ground, to get trials going, to get things approved. Um, and it's a, it's a, a conversation that I heard with a, uh, um, psychopharmacologist. His name is David Nutt. <clears throat> He's uh, in the UK and, he he authored the and he authored the paper that we've talked about several times on the show, which is um, the uh, the study between psilocybin and uh, versus I can't remember the name of the drug, but it was a it was a common antidepressant, and mm-hmm. uh, and sort of how, how they how the two stacked up against each other, yeah. and um, and and David Nutt did this did this podcast that I listened to um, with a with a guy named Peter Atia, and. He he has this framework for how different drugs have been, um, how like what their effect is to the individual, and then what that effect is on society as well, mm-hmm. versus how we have um, scheduled them in terms of the way that we've uh, the, the way that um, we've le- legislated these drugs and where yeah. they fall in terms of how they're how they're scheduled and all that stuff, and how those two things how the how it affects the individual and society and how we've legislated them are so divorced from each other mm-hmm. um, that you end up with this mishmash of different substances that are categorized in wildly ineffective ways, oh, which yeah. then ultimately makes, you know, work like what you're doing and work with, with compounds that have really amazing benefit benefits, incredibly challenging based on just a historical misunderstanding of what these drugs are and what they do and I mean, I know that we're moving in the right direction right now, but it, I can't help but find it frustrating looking, <laughs> yeah. ba- looking, looking back yeah. in time and going, there are so many yeah. mistakes made that if they weren't made, then, you know, hundred thousands, hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of people are getting relief mm-hmm. from their conditions or from the things that they're struggling with way, way sooner, or maybe mitigated into almost entirely, you mm-hmm. know, if we had just been you know, smarter and more rational with the way that we looked at, at these certain compounds. Sorry, that was a, that ended up being a bit of a rant. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you're telling me the frustration <laughs> with that, <laughs> like the number of like hurdles it takes to, to do this type of work. And, you know, it took us three years to get our first study in Toronto off the ground. And that was already, I've I'd already done a study in the States <laughs> and, but it was, you know, to try to get it set up and ready to roll here. And thankfully we're there. And I have to say, actually, Health Canada has been really good to work with. It's more, um, it's like, it's, you know, it's getting the ethics approval. Like, you know, mm. the, the, the boards are, they're scared, which it makes sense. It's new, it's different or, and there has been such stigma around these substances. Right. But it's, you know, it's the, it's the safety profiles are so much safer than a lot of medications that are out there. And so you go like, wow, like all of these hoops to jump because of the stigma that's there. And you hope you're just going to be held to the same medical and scientific standard that other things are, but you know that you're going to be scrutinized. Like, and so I think that's the thing now is it's, we're at a time where it's like in the public consciousness, the fact that we're having this conversation speaks to that, or people are interested, they're compelled by it. Um, And it's like, we have to do it right because otherwise we may lose the opportunity to actually continue with this work. If there's, if people kind of go rogue or aren't careful and don't cross their T's and dot their I's. So mm-hmm. I'm always 
mindful of that, even though obviously I would love it to go a little faster. It would be, you know, I don't, I don't mind doing the mountains of paperwork around it because I, you know, feel like that's, that's what will create the, what we need so that it can continue. Hi, I'm Jesse Cruikshank. Jesse Cruikshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Let's actually talk about some of the uh, some of the trials and some of the research. I, so I know that you were the lead investigator of a pilot trial um, using cognitive processing therapy (CPT) for PTSD using MDMA. Um, I guess the my my first question there is. Um, uh, what is um, typically without MDMA? What what is uh, CPT? How does CPT typically work? Yeah, so CPT is a talk therapy. So it's um, a it's usually about twelve sessions, and it, you, people would usually do it weekly. So think of standard psychotherapy. You go in, you talk with your therapist for an hour, and the focus of that treatment is on meaning making around traumatic events. And so the way that, that we're working with thoughts and emotions to understand where the person is stuck after the trauma. And so you're looking at how their their beliefs may have become more entrenched if they weren't helpful to begin with, or they may have shifted and are keeping the person in a place where, for example, like acceptance and blame and power and control and intimacy, those are all impacted by the trauma. So you're kind of um, untangling that knot with folks in, in the talk therapy. And so when we're combining it with MDMA, what we're trying to do is amplify the parts of the therapy where we think it could use a boost. And so we do two MDMA sessions. We do one early on in the protocol Hmm. to get folks going, kind of get them deep in, like, so they have a couple of therapy sessions beforehand so that they're getting comfortable with the therapist. They're thinking about their trauma, they're talking about it. And then we go in for the first session then they're doing processing between. Then the second session is really in the heart of the trauma processing. And so they have another session there that helps that mm. process kind of unstick even more. So yeah, and, that's what we're doing. And with this trial, um, what, uh, you know, going into this beforehand, I'm sure you had some some ideas of like what to maybe perhaps expect, especially being someone who actually has put yourself in the shoes of the, of the patient of, you know, going through this, um, Mm -hmm. what stuck out to you in that first trial? Um, did anything surprise you, uh, in terms of results or, or things that you really weren't quite anticipating? Yeah. So it's interesting what way we've done it. So the, the very first pilot we ran was a couple's pilot. And then we're actually running the CPT one right now. So it's hot off the presses, which is great in terms of what's happening. Um, and very close in my mind, you know, cause we just had a session last week and, you know, we have another one on Saturday. So it's there, it's, it's in the ongoing process, but what's really been cool is taking the learnings from the first one, which was like the first time I'd ever sat with anyone in an MDMA session after having had my own experiences, but then getting to witness everyone's different experiences. And that's one thing that really struck me is how vastly different everybody's unique experience is in the MDMA session. So I was able to appreciate that given that I knew what mine felt like. And then seeing that you know, this person's is really different from this person's. And the, in that couple study too, we were dosing two people together. So two, one person with PTSD and then their partner. And those, you know, you, when you see two people in the session at the same time who are having vastly different experiences too, that it's, um, I like it because it keeps you on your toes, first of all, but also you, I just, I don't make assumptions or guesses in terms of how it's going to go in those sessions because it, it is, um, and I, I, you kind of answered, answered the question that was coming up into my head there, but I just wanted to make sure, um, that when you're, when you're doing couples therapy using MDMA, mm-hmm. um, and P, for PTSD, it is, 
it, it is often, I guess, the uh, somebody who's dealing with PTSD, and, or or maybe or maybe or maybe both, but I'm I'm assuming more commonly it's probably one, mm-hmm. and and is it couples therapy because it, the way that that trauma is affecting the relationship? Great question. Yeah. So, um, that intervention is, so maybe actually, maybe I'll, I'll dial back and like share a bit about that one and then that'll help answer that question. So that's the treatment that we originally invited to collaborate with maps on. And so that's a couple's treatment where normally it's 15 sessions and we condensed it down into, um, you know, we did everything in about, uh, six weeks with that one. And again, two MDMA sessions. And the purpose there and why they're doing it together is that we think that healing from PTSD in a relationship or in a, in a system can have broader impact than just doing it on your own. So I think both ways are effective. And a lot of people don't have someone they would want to do a treatment with, but if they do, then having that opportunity, so you can not only target PTSD, but you can target the relationships functioning and Hmm. outcomes for the partner too. So for that study, um, we ran that one in South Carolina with our colleagues at their clinic and they, and we did, it was six couples. And in that case, it happened to be all romantic couples. Um, even though our, we were open to it being, it could have been siblings. It could have been parent child could have been really close friends. It happened to be that we ended up recruiting six romantic couples. Um, and, and it was the case that we had one person had to have PTSD and the other one didn't have PTSD in the future. I don't know that that would necessarily have to be the case. It was just, you know, you have to be pretty clear, like parameters in a trial. So, you know, we're right now, then we're running this individual one in, in Toronto, and then we're about to launch a large couples one. So kind of the larger trial of that original one. So we'll be doing that here too. And that one, how large is large? 60 couples. Wow. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That is large. Yeah. Wow. Amazing. Yeah. Huge. <laughs> so it's going to be, Holy. yeah, big piece of work over about five years. Um, and yeah, and that one will be romantic or beyond. So, right. so, so, so it's, so it's not necessarily, so it's not necessarily <laughs> or specifically to, to, um, to target the way in which, uh, someone's trauma might be affecting the relationship that they're in, be it sibling or something, but it's actually the, it's actually the combination of having a person with someone that they care about dealing with the trauma to sort of like together in support Mm -hmm. and having that experience together. Yeah. And I think it's actually both, right? So it's, it is how it's impacting them together and it's focusing on how it is in the relationship. So there's, there's, you know, we talk about how each of them are impacted, how the relationship is impacted, how the relationship might be keeping it alive in some ways. We talk about that as like accommodation, which can yeah. be really well-meaning, but unfortunately it ends up creating the circumstance where, you know, people stay stuck and that, that can be a huge piece of trying to yeah. unravel that because both people are bought in to that. Like, like, yeah. oh no, I can never, or, you know, I, you know, I take care of all these things for my partner because, you know, otherwise, you know, they'll get too activated or they can't handle that. I have to keep everything quiet. That's the, I mean, that's, that's one of the wilder things about PTSD, you know, like how it, it doesn't just manifest for the person who's diagnosed with it, but it it really, it it finds ways to manifest even within the people that are close to that person. And uh, it it makes, I mean, it makes a whole lot of sense that the study is happening because I feel like it could be you know, pretty revolutionary. What, what, like, what are the, when, in terms of this large one that you have coming up, like, what are the parameters? What are the, what are the things that you are looking for, for like ideal candidates? Yeah. So it's, we're still at the stage in MDMA research where we're very, um, we're very careful in terms of folks, um, kind of medical comorbidities. So basically people have to be physically healthy uh, to go in. So we do a huge medical screen. <laughs> um, sure, and uh, we also are doing things like um, uh, other psychological screen as well. So I think that's important. So people, you know, we have some things where people can't have uh, a different disorder, but not every disorder. So it's, uh, but yeah, generally speaking, what we're looking for is two people who want to go through the treatment together and who the strength of their relationship is there and they don't have to be happy in the relationship. They could be distressed, but they have to be 
um, committed to doing the work together and it has to be impacting both of them. Mm. And I think that's important. So for example, you know, people who live on other sides of the country, that's probably not going to be impacting their day to day in the same way together versus folks who are, you know, cohabitating in some way, shape or form. And what, what is the dosage for, for something like that? Is is, is that something you can talk about? Like what, like how the, like the technicalities of like, what, like what is dosed out for, for these, these, these sessions? Yeah. So, uh, the dosages have varied a little bit between studies. Um, so for the first study we did, for example, we, the first session is two MDMA sessions. The first one people get 75 milligrams. So it's kind of like the lowest therapeutic dose. Um, and then, uh, they got a hundred milligrams in the second one. Okay. The, the future one we're planning would be 100 milligrams across the board for folks, and you know studies have gone up to like 120, 125, um, and those are all in the kind of therapeutic range. Yeah, cool. I, I'm 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 wondering about uh, the you know when when the you, you know you were saying that that they're like one hour sessions um, when looking at things like CBT and CPT, mm-hmm. um, and I know that uh, when when so I've heard uh, that uh, when people uh, uh, ingest MDMA, that it it's mm-hmm. it is a, an experience that lasts you know six to eight hours. Um, so, so you've like, heard. So I've heard. Uh, word on the street. Uh, and <laughs> I, uh, I'm I'm wondering like how do you, how do you account for that extended period of um, uh, what was the word non ordinary state uh, mm-hmm. that you know. Is it, is it, is that one session when you use the, the, uh, the, the medicine kind of dragged out a little longer, or do you just keep it to the one hour and then have sort of like an aftercare booklet that you just give to the patient? Yeah, definitely not. No. So when we (laughs) do our MDMA days, we are with the participant for eight hours. Um, so the therapists are there. We're actually in the room where I'm sitting right now and they're on my couch back there. Um, and yeah. So we're there with them all day. So our therapy, the way we're actually doing it in these studies is we're, kind of, we're condensing down like what would normally be, for example, 12 sessions in CPT, we're doing it in six. So we get these two hour chunks of therapy and then these two long MDMA days. Um, and then, so that allows, you know, whatever is going to happen, whatever's going to unfold in that experience, there's a lot of space and time for that to happen. And the person supported throughout it, which is, really important. And I think that's when you think about the context of how people are doing this work, being well supported in those sessions is incredibly important. So people can feel safe to actually do that deep internal work. Mm. Um, So that's, and you can tell, you can feel the difference too, even between the first one and the second one, like people are more connected. They're more uh, able to accept um, support in a, um, heartfelt way, you know, and it's interesting because we, you know, as a therapist, I, um, kind of am of one of the schools where I don't touch my clients. Like I, you know, would barely like shake a hand or hug, which is funny as a person I I do, but Mm. as a therapist, I don't, I like, like to keep that space, but in the MDMA sessions, um, when we talked about this beforehand, we do offer some therapeutic touch, meaning like a hand to hold or a hand Mm. on the shoulder and the forehead. Um, and it can be incredibly effective and you can imagine, like you can see the difference if the person wasn't there and they weren't offering that, how the person could go more deeply in. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's happened for mo- many participants we've worked with. I was going to say most, I actually do think most that at some point they want some type of like a hand. Um, mm-hmm. and it's usually when they're going into something really difficult and it's, you know, they're able to have that human connection. Mm-hmm. On the on the uh, on the PTSD side of 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 things in 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 the context of um, how we see it and how we understand it societally, um, and you know, and maybe maybe this was I, I'm assu- I'm I'm making the assumption that this was probably frustrating from the from this from the um, from the seat of the psychologist as as PTSD became so so known in pop culture as like a war related thing, <laughs> how it, right. became, how it, how it, how it sort of came into the public consciousness as like, you know, this is the thing that, that people experience when they go to war. Um, 
and and how <clears throat> and I don't really think that that's where that's where it is now. I think it's I think by and large it's exited that phase and it's more understood as a as a as as you know basically anything anything traumatic can <laughs> can kind of lead to can lead to that. Um, at least I, that's that's my perception. But I'm in a bit of a bubble mm-hmm. uh, with this podcast, so I could be wrong. But what are your what are your sort of thoughts on on where that is in terms of how you know people who experience PTSD I feel like I feel like if if the understanding of it is is more general and broad for what it for what it actually is or or how it can actually manifest mm-hmm. can lead to um you know more people seeking seeking therapy to, for, for relief. Um, is that, I'm not really, I've kind of lost my train of thought in terms of how I was forming this question, but is, like societally, do, do you feel that that has, that that has come along? I do. And in fact, I think it's shifted a lot. And even to the case where I think, um, folks are starting to recognize the impact of traumatic experiences. And what's interesting is that folks will often can, you know, equate having had a traumatic experience with PTSD, that they're kind of one in the same when it's actually the case that a traumatic experience and struggling afterwards can cause a whole range of different things. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because in some ways it's almost like PTSD kind of gets privileged within that, that like, that's the, like, Oh, you're actually suffering if you have PTSD, but I mean, really like some people could develop depression. Some people could have mm. a substance use, you know, uh, disorder. Some people could have an eating disorder. Like there's all kinds of things that can happen. PTSD is just one mm. outcome. Um, and that folks are, I really believe like on a spectrum all the time on all of these different things. You just, if you hit kind of a threshold, then you might get a diagnosis of one of these. Mm, right. Yeah. Um, but we can all be somewhere along the line on everything at some point in time. So I definitely think um, the public understanding around the impact of trauma, the impact of PTSD is, has changed drastically, even like within the length of time that I've been doing this work, um, which is great. Uh, but I also think that it's, it's like, we almost like we need to further the conversation even more around it going like, right. It's not just PTSD and it's not just mm-hmm. complex PTSD. It's like, there's these other things that can come out of it too. And it doesn't, um, it doesn't make the trauma any less bad. It, mm-hmm. it just is a different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, especially now, especially now, you know, like, especially, especially considering the last two years um, has been a, a, a rather traumatic event for pretty much every single human on the planet. Yeah. You know, in, in the next, in the next decade, I think it's going to be really important that we acknowledge um, the, the nuances of, of what, what a traumatic event actually can, can result mm. in, you know? I've, I also, uh, I also want to point out that I've noticed, and I, I think you could probably attest to this chair just in, in, you know, general conversation with, with people that you, you start to find that the term PTSD has started to be used sort of in the same way that people will use OCD to describe being really neat. Mm-hmm. Like how they'll say mm-hmm. that, you know, some experience that wasn't traumatic, uh, you know, but maybe it sucked, mm-hmm. but it probably wouldn't f- fall under the category of traumatic is, you know, has given them PTSD and, and it uses like a throwaway term, mm-hmm. which, um, which, yeah. which equally has its, has its, has its itch, has its issues. And not that that's people who are using it that way are, you know, ill-meaning or anything, but that mm. it, you know, it, you, you <clears throat> want to be careful about how language sort of starts to lose its power because it is a, it is a very meaningful and, mm. and challenging thing. And so you, you don't, you want to kind of treat it with the respect that it, I guess it deserves. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, w- one of the things that I that I feel is is kind of um, uh, sort of important to note here, just through through the discussion that we've we've had, um, and, and maybe Anne, you can you can kind of um, add to this with with what you with what you have with what you with your knowledge, but um, just this notion of like how how 
psychedelics um, and psychedelics being used for healing and, and being used for growth. Um, you know, b- both Taylor and I just have, have said openly on the podcast a thousand times that although we've never done it in a in a space with a trained professional to guide us through that, we have like recreationally dabbled in the world of psychedelics with a with a like deep intention. Um, but but I think it's, you know, for people hearing these types of conversations, I think one of the things that is really important to uh, realize and just consider is how how psychedelics are, are and and this is this is your own words and uh, psychedelics are 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 opening the door for the opportunity opportunity to heal mm-hmm. um but the, the psychedelic itself doesn't do the healing right um and and yeah so just you know to that point like it, is there anything that you can add to that just for people listening to this right now thinking like oh wow this this sounds great i'm going to go and buy some molly and and yeah. uh, and and try to do the work on on my own yeah <laughs> Oh yeah. That's, oh, this is like my favorite topic where it's, um, it, it very much is the case where a psychedelic can create the opportunity or the pathway that someone can have a really powerful opening or healing or whatnot. However, it is not just taking it. It is like, it's then like, what do you do with the insights that come up? What happens afterwards? Oftentimes it's really difficult after one of these psychedelic experiences because you're cracked open. You suddenly see all these things that are coming up. You like old memory or realizing of patterns or habits or you it. So it's, it's illuminating everything. It's showing you what's there. And actually we use that, you know, verbiage a lot that, for example, with MDMA, it's going to show you whatever needs to come up in that moment. And that might not be very pretty. Right. Mm. And so if that's coming up, then it's like, great. You've been just get handed this gift, this opportunity of going great. Okay. See it now. What, what, now what do I do with it? And so that's, that's the important part. And that's why it's, it's really interesting too. For example, like when folks are deeply into the psychedelic world and, you know, journeying very frequently, I'm, you know, often it's the question mark of like, but why? Because if Mm -hmm. you're doing this and then needing to take time to integrate what's happened, it's very difficult to be doing, you know, journeys all the time because it's like, what, where's the learning coming from after Mm -hmm. that? So, um, yeah, I often think about that and we, it's, it's happening a little bit less now. I think there's been more, um, more clarity in the messaging that's happening in the media and there's less like magic bullet effect. Um, but people do still have that idea that this is going to be the cure, but a lot of folks, when they were contacting the clinic and also not realizing, you know, at Remedy that we don't offer, you know, we don't sit for people in our normal clinic. Like we, we do prep and integration. Um, if people have experiences outside the clinic, but people weren't understanding that like, Oh, you can't just give me MDMA and, let me be on my way. And yeah, I was right. like, yeah. uh, no, <laughs> that's yeah. really, really not yeah. it. And it's like, that's only like one piece of the puzzle. It's within mm-hmm. yeah. the whole you know, larger. And of yeah. course, like, of course, like that's the way that's, I mean, that, that is the way that we typically relate to medicine, right? It's like, yeah. take the pill and the pill makes you better, you know? Yeah. And that's, and, yeah. and, but, but this is not, this is not that this is a very different, uh, this is a very different thing. This is a, this is a tool to, put into put into play the work that needs to be done it's yeah. not like taking an advil to get rid of you know an ache or a pain um no. that is a fascinating insight there jer mm-hmm. like i i've never really thought of, about it that way but our relationship to taking really anything is mm-hmm. that it will just do it yes yeah exactly and that's the default expectation yeah mm-hmm. yeah I, uh, I, I want to say, first of all, congratulations, uh, Anne, because I know that, uh, the, the Remedy Institute just got its uh, char- charitable status, which yes. that's, that's very exciting. Um, uh, tell us you know, before we wrap, just, just give us a little bit of insight into the Remedy Institute, um, you know, how it works, um, and, and how, I mean, I, I don't know if this is one, if this is a, a thing or not, but like, can people get involved in terms of helping this this sort of research go further and, and, you know, allow ourselves to get a little bit closer to that point where we're trying to get, which is a place where these medicines can be used, um, can be used widely. Absolutely. And so that's the, 
one of the pillars of Remedy Institute is the idea of uh, forming community and doing things in community around it. So the idea with Remedy Institute and having it as a charity has always been in the vision uh, with Remedy. And so they're always meant to exist side by side. So Remedy, the clinic, it donates its profits to Remedy Institute. And so Remedy Institute is now the home for the research. So we run our clinical trials there and we also have a fund for accessible services. Mm. And so meaning that people can donate money for other folks to access mental health services. Cause that's one of the mm. biggest issues we have in terms of getting people to, to wellness is people can't afford it. And so that's one of our ways that we're trying to help in that way. And so, yeah, with the Institute, what we're doing, we have the current trial that's running, which is CPT plus MDMA. We have the big upcoming couples trial. And then we have a number of other ones in the works, um, including, you know, hopefully in a little bit down the line and we're going to fundraise for this is doing a couples therapy with MDMA with no diagnosis. So for relationship mm. functioning. Mm. Um, so that's a big one on the horizon. And we have a num number of other projects that our team members are engaged in and working on. So yeah, we officially launched today, actually, the day of recording this in the oh, Institute. Wow. Yeah. Cool. And, um, if people are interested, they can um, either join our mailing list, in, which is at remedyinstitute.ca, and they can stay up to date on events. And now that they, you know, we're hopefully able to gather together a little bit more, we'll be having a more community building events where people can learn about the work and actually see where it's taking place. Mm. Um, and people can also donate so they can do that through the page. Amazing. Awesome. Dr. Ann Wagner, uh, this has been exactly what I anticipated it to be a, a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for taking us into your world and showing us uh, uh, just a little bit of, of what you've got coming up. It's, I mean, to me, it's just endlessly fascinating and I'm, I'm so optimistic and hopeful for a future where these medicines are getting into the hands of the people that need them and, and used in a really responsible and and you know helpful way. Um, thank you for the work that you do. Thank you for taking time out of your schedule to sit down and chat with us. This has been a real treat. Well, thanks so much. This has been a real pleasure. I'm really glad to have the conversation. That is it for today. Thank you so much, everybody, for tuning in. If you like what you heard, make sure that you share our podcast with your friends. We love those extra ears. Sick Boy Podcast is a Snack Labs production. It is produced by myself, Jeremy Saunders, Taylor McGilvery, Brian Stever, and Lauren Sankey. Sound design is coming to you from Donovan the Meerkat Morgan. The music of the show is from our friend Rich O'Coin. And Sick Boy Podcast is managed by Jeffrey Lonis. That is it for today. I'm Brian. I'm Taylor. And I'm Jeremy. And this is Sick Boy. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.